So we have you ever had the experience? Um, I don't know if any of you have ever been. There's a lot of places where we, when we came to the UK, one of the things we loved is in the UK, people love going for walks, rambling or whatever they call it. Uh, and Jeanette and I love that, <coughs> even if uh, maybe our knees aren't quite what they used to be in trying to get it done. But uh, we love going for walks and doing things like that. But uh, have you ever been on a walk where you know you've got a long distance to go but, uh, and you're sort of getting tired now. You've been going for a long time. And this is, I'm thinking of when we were doing this in Zim and you're sort of going up these hills and down these hills. And then as you're heading, you can see this hill in front of you and you think, well, you just have to get to the top of that hill and you know the destination's just on the other side. And so you climb up to the top of that hill and you look down and there's no destination. And it's just miles and miles. You realize, oh, you still got so much further to go. I don't know if you've ever been there, but uh, isn't that sometimes how life is? We often think all we've got to do is just get to the top of this rise and uh, then, then that's, that's it. We, we, uh, we've reached our destination. But you know, sometimes you do reach your destination. And sometimes it can come in unusual ways. Um, I've got a picture of a place in Zim called World's View. Let me come back a bit so that I can actually see all of this. Um, so if you want to go to the first picture or the other picture, now, when you go up to World's View, World's View is a place in Zimbabwe. So they call it World's View because Zimbabwe is not totally mountainous, but it's got some mountain regions like the Metopus. And this is what we call the Eastern Highlands. And if you go to the Eastern Highlands in Zimbabwe, you, you, you travel up and you're going along this road and it goes forever, it seems. And you go past a couple of lakes and that. Then you reach the top. And at the top, they've got a sign there saying World's View. And you're sort of looking, thinking, well, OK. And there's this little tower that you have to go into. So you sort of, uh, you go, go into this little tower to, to enter. And when you get in, if you go to the next picture, you have this sudden view where you can see the whole vista all around us. You know, there's a whole view that's going on. And it's a beautiful, you know, because, and then they've got, if you have a look, there's all these little placards all around telling you so far to Cape Town, so far to London, so far to, you know, all the different places that you can actually get to and, and which direction you should be looking. Not that you can actually see those places when you look. I tried, but, uh, you know, it doesn't, you can't see that far, but it does give you a world view. It gives you a perspective. And it does a couple of things. One is it makes you sort of realize how small you are compared to the vastness that you see around you, but also gives you a, a sense of awe of, of the fact that you can actually see so far, that there is so much that you can comprehend. You can see God's creation. You can see the fact of uh, what man can actually do in achieving in this world. And uh, today we're actually, we, as you know, we're, uh, we've been climbing up this mountain. I don't know if you've, did you, do you have the picture of the mountain by any chance that, uh, Okay, we're climbing up this mountain of Romans, the book of Romans, and we're in our process of it. Now, would you believe we are now reaching the top of that mountain where they've got the word hope? We're now reaching the summit, the place where we can get to see this beautiful view. And I have the privilege of actually preaching on the chapter that is for the summit of this mountain, telling us about what we've actually done in Romans. But, but of course, Romans chapter 8, you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to tell you something that you probably never knew. But you know that Romans chapter 8 comes after Romans 1 to 7. Okay, just, as, just, just in case you weren't aware, it's, it's not a chapter on its own. It actually follows a flow of story. It's actually a part of a, a whole process. And in Romans 1 to 7, of course, we've had a whole lot of things. We've been told in the beginning that uh, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you're still lost. You know, the Jews who thought they had the law didn't obey it and still fell short of what God wanted. The Gentiles who were away from the law, they, they still fell short of even what they put aside. And, and we realize that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And of course, we apply that. That was Jew and Gentile back then. You can apply it to today. There are those of us who have never been to church, who are far away from God, 
do you know you're lost? But unfortunately, there are those of us who go to church all the time and we're part of church and we, we think we're attending. But you know that if you don't have a relationship with God, you're just as lost. So, so, so we realize that all are lost. But then, of course, he goes on in Romans sort of from four to six. He, he goes on to start explaining that uh, we have faith in what Christ has done. That Christ, when we were still sinners, when we were still broken, he saw where we were and he came and he actually he lived a perfect life and then he died on a cross and offered that sacrifice for us so that we, if we accept him as Lord and Savior, we can actually take that perfect life into ourselves and give him our broken life, which is what some one of the things we'll cover in chapter eight. But of course, all of that happens. And then he goes on to say, but then he looks at his life in, in chapter seven and he says, uh, he still sees things, you know, you know, you know, as a Christian, what, what Abby was just talking about, you know, when you become a Christian, don't you think this is, the, you know, you, when you first become a Christian or when you're first baptized, you think, now I'm in. This is it. I am never going to sin again. And then you get home from church and you discover that it's not quite the same. You know, it's a, <laughs> you know, someone cuts you off in the traffic and uh, you suddenly uh, are waving a fist at them or saying some, some things. You think, ah, where'd that come from? You know, and you realize that we, we still have these things. And what Paul says there, he says, I do the things I don't want to do. And the things that I, uh, that I know I should be doing, I don't do. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, and we, we find ourselves falling very short. And he goes through that whole chapter. And at the end of the chapter, he's sort of saying, I look at all this and I despair. But for Jesus Christ. And that's where he ends. And so we, we're going to have a look at chapter eight. Now, what I've called chapter eight, I've called it Welcome to the Family. Because that's what, what, what we actually find with, with, with uh, Jesus Christ is he's actually, it's not just that he saves us, he actually brings us into his family. He actually makes us a part of the body of Christ. We actually become a part of the work that he's actually doing. So let's start. I'm breaking it into three parts. Now, what we've done, because we sort of, we, uh, now, now what Russ has been doing over the last few, few weeks is I think it's like we've taken a plane and we're actually whipping over Romans. So, so you're getting little glimpses as you go through and you get this big picture of it. Um, and we've got that mountain that we're climbing up. But, uh, but, we, but because we're going over it quite quickly, he's not been able to read everything on it. Well, I only have to do one chapter today. So because of that, we're going to read the whole chapter. Sorry about that. But I actually think it's one of, the, it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And it's, there's so much in it. I, I, you, know, you know, normally you sort of take the few verses that you want to do. And I couldn't think of the verses. So we're going to read everything. Okay, so, so we're going to start off. So, so the first point, and I'm making three points on it. Because you know I'm a three-point person. You know, that way you can remember what's going on. And, uh, and, uh, and I've tried to make them so that they sort of link, um, hopefully. So the first point we're going to make is now there is no condemnation. Now there is no condemnation. And I want us to read from Romans chapter 8 from verses 1 to 11. So if you've got Bibles, turn there. If not, it hopefully will be on the screen. <clears throat> we're reading from the New, the new, Living, new, uh, new Life Translation. New Living Translation. New Living Translation. Okay. Shall I read from this? <clears throat> so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we, we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the Spirit. 
Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of the sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives with you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by His same Spirit living within you. Okay, it's Romans 1, 8 to 11. All right. <clears throat> so I found that when people come to this, by the way, how that chapter starts, there is now no condemnation. Now, that can be read two ways, and I've seen, seen it read two ways. Now, the one way to read it, is there's no condemnation. This is wonderful. God is now not going to condemn me ever again. I can now go do what I want. I'm now free. It doesn't matter what I do. I can now live this life because there's no condemnation on me. Well, that's great, but you've got to read that chapter, that verse on its own without remembering that, of course, there are seven chapters before Romans and without knowing that there are actually verses after that that actually say something very different. And what we actually realize is that uh, God looks at your broken life where you are and all that you've done. And if you take all that we've actually covered in Romans, he sees where you are right now. And he then, if we give it to Christ, he takes that brokenness on and everything that you've done, that condemnation is taken away. You are now free. It's a bit like, you know, I often think of it as a bit like someone who's, uh, um, who, who does something wrong and he goes to prison for doing that thing wrong. And he then does his time in prison. When he gets out, do you know he is now that, that, that his, he has now paid his penalty. He is now free. He is not condemned anymore for that because he is now free of that. He is now free to carry on. Now, the wonderful thing is you don't have to go to prison. The wonderful thing is Christ has actually done that for us on the cross, but he has paid the penalty. And I think we often forget that he paid the penalty. He has taken your guilt onto himself. He has actually paid the price so that you can go free. And uh, so we have no condemnation. We can actually walk with our head held up because of that. It doesn't mean we can continue sinning. You're never set free to sin. You're set free to be set free from sin. You're set free to live righteously. You're set free so that you can now worship and praise God. But it does mean you don't have to live in despair and, and guilt because of what you have done. You know, you can actually place that on God and, and He will set us free. Um, but God does more than just set us free. If you carry on reading, you then read the next verses and he talks about the fact of being different, of the, that you can be in the flesh or you can be in the spirit. Now, what is that talking about? That's actually the Holy Spirit coming to live in us. So, so when we accept Christ, if you come to a point where you realize you cannot save yourself, like what we've discovered in Romans, you cannot save yourself. You're a sinner that, that is far away from God. You can do nothing to save yourself. And you then come to God and you, you repent. Now, repent means basically you say, Lord, I'm sorry. I, you know, I can't do anything I, I, for what I've done. I now place myself at the foot of the cross. I now accept you as Lord and Savior of my life. And, uh, you know, and by that, that means you now surrendering yourself to God. 
You're now surrendering to allow him to take over your life. And when you do that, something magical happens or mystical happens. Um, a mystery is what the Bible talks about. You become a part of the family of God. You become a part. You, you are now then brought into this family. Um, and the, that sacrifice is now for us. And, and the Holy Spirit actually comes and takes residence inside you. So it's not something, it's not like, you know, you, we often think it could be like a bit of a court case where, you know, you go to court and now the judge looks at it and says, right, um, because of what Christ has done, you're now free. Stamp. It's more than that because God doesn't just set us free. He then puts the Holy Spirit in us to empower us, to give us life, to make us so, so that we can now follow Jesus. And as a matter of fact, that brings us to the next point, which uh, um, we're going to look at. So we're not only, so now we have no condemnation, but now we are adopted children of God. And that is the big thing. And uh, so if we can just read that from verses, um, Romans 8, verses 12 to 17. It says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you receive God's Spirit when you, He adopted you as His own children. Now we call Him Abba, Father. For His Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Now, on those amazing verses, I don't know if you've actually picked up what he's actually saying there, that we can now, because of this, when we come to Christ, our whole relationship changes. Now, Jeanette and I have a friend in, uh, in Zimbabwe, and uh, she was a wonderful lady. I mean, she, she puts us to shame with what, how she actually lived her Christianity. But uh, what she used to do when we first, before we got married, and then when we first got married, she at Christmas used to get a couple of children in from one of the children's homes. They were an orphan, orphanage place. And she'd get them in over Christmas, just for Christmas. And they would come in, and she would then make them part of her family for the Christmas uh, day. And they would get presents and they would have a big meal together. And because in the children's home, obviously these people didn't get, these kids never get, got to experience that because they didn't have families. So they would get to feel what it was like to be part of a family. Now, what was it? Now, that's a wonderful thing to do. And, and, and let me tell you, I, I actually, I'm amazed that she was able to sort of do that. As a matter of fact, to go on what she did later. But, uh, but those people, obviously, they came in, but they were not actually her kids. So she had other children. She had other kids. But they, these were be different to the kids. So they knew that they were just guests in the house. They were visitors. They were treated well. They were blessed. And, and she still remained, had a contact with them afterwards. But they, was not, they were not actually part of the family. But she went then a step further, a bit later, after we were married, and she found a young girl who was mentally and physically disabled. As a matter of fact, this girl could never walk or anything, so she had to be carried around everywhere. And uh, this girl, she actually went to make her part of the family. So in, in adopting her, I don't know if the adoption, she, 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 she adopted her to become. So she then became as much a part of her family as her kids. 
which was quite something for the kids to actually bear with, by the way. So, so you now got these other kids which are now grown up and they now have a, another girl that comes in that's now a sister with them, as it were, and part of the family. But now that she was part of the family, that meant that as this girl got worse and worse, because she, she was a very sickly child, as she got worse and worse, the mom had to sacrifice more and more for her. She ended up having to move into a special place where she could live to try look after this child. And the other kids suddenly found they had to do their part to support the mom and this child because this child now is part of the family. It's not like you can't, it's not Christmas and then at the end of Christmas you give them back to the home. This child is now in the home with them. Eventually this, this young girl um, died. And, uh, and of course, they had a huge big funeral for her and we went along to the funeral and everything. And it was, and it was to see the whole family come together. And, uh, and, and though it was very tragic and very sad, what I actually realized was she was having a family funeral. She was having the family were all together celebrating the life and death of this little girl because this was, it was one of their family members that had died. And, and I suddenly got to see a difference between that girl and the other kids that the mom used to take in at Christmas. Because those other kids, I think one of them ended up actually working with Jeanette at one stage or connected in one of the workplaces. So we got to see some of their lives and some of their lives got worse and they got wrecked and other lives got better. But of course, you lose touch because they're not part of the family. This little girl, we, because we were good friends with her, we actually got to see the whole thing she went through because she is part of the family. Do you wanna know what God's done with you? You're not there just for Christmas. You're not there just as a visitor. He's made you part of the family. And do you want to know what difference that is? It's do you realize that you are part of his family? Do you realize that your family sort of situation has changed? That, uh, that, that you are now actually in the family of God. You are now part of what they call the body of Christ. And that whatever happens, whatever happens to you, whether you get sick, whether you go through sin, whether you have bad things or good things, God is actually going to be there with you because you are now in his family. What a huge big difference that makes, hey? What a big difference that makes. And of course, that means as you go and face anything, you're actually, there's a couple of things that go with that, by the way. The one, on the one hand, it means that God will never leave you. On the other hand, it means that you represent God to the world. Because, you know, being part of the family, I don't know, did, you, did any of you ever watch the movie called, was it Stuart Little? about the little mouse that uh, um, this family eventually uh, adopted into part of their family. And uh, so the mouse becomes part of the family. I know it's a really ridiculous sort of film, but, uh, but uh, they were the little family. The family was called Little, and that's why it was Stuart Little. And uh, he used to say to Stuart Little, he used to say, but uh, we littles, you know, this is how the way the littles do it. This is their, their standard that they actually set. Well, you know, as Christians, there's a way we Christians do it. And there's a standard that we, that we are set. And Christ has set us a standard. Part of that standard, if you have a look at how that passage ended, it says that not only do we get to live with Christ, we also get to suffer with him. Now, a lot of the time, of course, that does mean we actually accept the fact that he suffered on the cross. And when he died on the cross, we realize that we died on the cross. We died on the cross with him. But it also means that if, he, if they treated him badly and he had to suffer in life, I hate to say this, but that probably means that the world's going to treat you badly and you may have to suffer in life. That, that's sort of a, you know, what, what happens to one part of the family happens to all. <clears throat> um, let me go on to the next, the third part. And it says there, and um, I've called this, now we are more than conquerors. So now we are, we're no longer under condemnation. Now you're adopted children of, of God, but now we go a step further. We are more than conquerors. So I want to read from verse 18 to 30. So it's quite a long section. 
And it says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believe... And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as the adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. And God knew His people in advance, and He chose them to become like His Son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. So I just want to end it there for now. We'll come to the the rest just now. But uh, we are more than conquerors. So we used to be condemned. We're now no longer under condemnation. We're now part of the family of God. We're now part of the family that rules the universe. And, uh, a lot of times, when, when we read this, by the way, I, I know when I initially read this, I, I remember reading it thinking, this means I will have no more trials. This means now that I've had all the trials up until now, now that I'm saved, wonderful. I can now go into this now new era. And unfortunately, there is a, and there's a lot of the thing, what we call the prosperity gospel, which actually teaches, you know, that if, if you're in Christ, you should always be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And a wonderful thought. But uh, that's not quite what I read biblically, you know, because it's, uh, it's quite interesting what, what it talks about here is the fact that, uh, that uh, we will suffer. But when we suffer, Christ will be with us. And that he will not allow any suffering to come on you that he is not in sort of, uh, that he doesn't know about and that he is not going to be with you in. Now, it doesn't mean that you will understand the suffering. You know, because a lot of the time we can look at this and think, well, then that, that means I can be able to explain it and all this. Let me tell you, I think there's a lot of things that we've gone through, which I'm still asking God why. And I don't understand why. But, but, but I do know that as I went through it, God was with me. And that, that is what we've got to hold on to. And uh, um, it, it's, but, but it also means that uh, when you're a Christian, it means that you've got to stand with, uh, with the, the other Christians as what they're going through. Because it's not only suffering for ourselves, but he's called us together as a body. In the Old Testament, we see a lot of prophets were called individually. But you want to know that he's called us now as a church. Do you know the word church? Now, there's, there's a lot of teaching where the, the, word, the word church actually comes from. The, the, the word ecclesia means the called out ones. Now, what actually happens in modern thinking we hear called out ones and we see, ah, oh, so I'm a called out individual and that makes me part of the church. That's actually not what the word means. Church cannot be a word unless there is more than one in it. You cannot be a church on your own. You're called to be part of a body of Christ. You're called to be with others. We're called to do this together. So when we suffer, we're called to actually suffer together. 
or we're called to celebrate together. We're called to do this together. And uh, I've got to see this. Jeanette and I, as you know, Jeanette's a wonderful singer and she can sing. And uh, I'm a wonderful noisemaker and I can make noise. And, uh, but Jeanette joined a choir and uh, the choir for their sins decided that I should join as well. So I've joined the choir with Jeanette. So the two of us are now going along to a choir. But, but there's something about joining a choir which I hadn't actually fully grasped. The one is when you've got a performance on and it's coming up, <clears throat> as you get closer and closer, you start to realize how you're not as rehearsed as you should be for a start. And you start getting closer to the performance. You start thinking, we're going into this, but we're not really ready yet. I actually think we need another couple of months rehearsal before we actually do the performance. But you want to know something? That performance is going to happen whether you're ready or not. And now it comes to the date of the performance. I've got to make a choice. Do I go stand with the choir and sing, regardless of whether it's sung well or sung badly, do I still stand with them? And you know something? As part of the choir, I have to go stand with them because that's what the, that's being part of the choir family is. Do you want to know that's the same in the church? In the church, we have to stand with each other, whether it be for good or bad. Now, there are some, some things. We look in the church, and you can see there's a lot of areas in the church where there are bad things happening. And there are difficult things happening. Now, I unfortunately have seen a lot of Christians who, when they see bad things happen, will criticize that part of the church and say, well, that part of the church is obviously not the real church. Let's throw them out because they... I cannot believe that that is Christian. Christian means that we stand together, even if that part of the body is hurting. And what it does mean is we need to pray for that part of the body. But we need to stand together. We need to work together because we are one body. We're part of, we do this together. And uh, he's called us to, to uh, do this. As a matter of fact, because some parts of the body hurt, and we, we all see it. I mean, we all look at the church and you'll see they do a vote on one part of the church and they start making decisions. You sort of think, well, that's totally not Christian. Where are they going with that? What we should be doing is groaning. We should be groaning to Christ saying, this is something that we, come Lord Jesus. We need to sort this out because this is Christ's body. Come Lord Jesus to, to actually put us right with you. It doesn't mean condemning that part of the body. It means praying for that part of the body, praying for them to be strengthened. But it does mean that we groan. And it's interesting that this whole passage we were reading talks about the fact that we groan. And I think part of that groaning is, come Lord Jesus. You know, the more you see the world getting worse, come Lord Jesus. We look at creation and it says there that even creation is groaning, come Lord Jesus. Even when we look at history, we see history groaning, come Lord Jesus. You know, it's, it's, and uh, even the Holy Spirit is said to be groaning, you know, helping us with groans that they can't be uttered. We need to be praying, come Lord Jesus, praying for the church in all that it's doing. But Paul then ends, he ends with, a, with a, some verses, which I'll go through now from verse 31 to 39. And uh, to me, these are such powerful verses. So, so let me just read through them. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give up everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Doesn't mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death. As the scripture says, for your sake, we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, 
overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What a beautiful way to end the chapter, eh? But do you know, again, I want you to notice something. More than conquerors. He talks about us being more than conquerors. Do you know that uh, if you, coming across to the UK from, uh, from Zimbabwe, I love the history of the UK. So, so looking at it all. And of course, a lot of the history books of the UK always start with William coming from Normandy, invading the UK, saying it's the last time the UK was really invaded. And William had a name. They called him William the Conqueror. Now, you know that the word conqueror means that he had to actually go and do something to conquer it. You don't just get that name and it means that you don't have to do anything. So when it says that nothing will be, you know, we are more than conquerors, you're going to have to conquer something. You're going to have work to do. You're going to have a battle on your hands. This is, it's not something, you, you know, you're not just given it on a plate, but God is with you as you go through it. And I just look at all that he actually put in here. And I love this, <clears throat> where it says there that uh, whatever you're facing, and I don't know what you faced in this last year. I don't know what you're facing now, but uh, look at what he, he says there. He said, if you're facing trouble, if you're facing calamity, if you're facing persecution, if you're facing hunger, if you're facing destitution, if you're in danger or if you're facing death, know that God is actually with you that you're more than conquerors in all those circumstances. It doesn't mean that you won't face those. As a matter of fact, unfortunately, I believe you will face those. Hopefully, most of us won't face all of that. There are some families you see face a lot more than others, which, uh, again, one day I'll have to ask God about. But, uh, but uh, if you face all of those, know that in all of it, God is with you. You know your friends won't necessarily be with you. Our friends say that they will be with us, and then things fall apart. I was actually, I was just thinking today, and it's, uh, now one of my favorite singers used to be Rolf Harris. Now, as a lot of you know, Rolf Harris fell from grace a little while ago and, uh, and fell into terrible sin, where we, we discovered what, some terrible things he was doing, and he ended up going to jail for it. And then he got out of jail, and uh, <clears throat> his wife actually still stood by him, which I thought was an amazing thing. And, but they had to sort of almost go into exile on their own, because, of course, coming out of jail, everyone sort of remembered the horrific things that he's actually done. Now, I have no idea about Rolf Harris, by the way. I have no idea if he repented. I have no idea if he, you know, anything that he's done. So, so I can't comment on that. But I was actually just thinking about it. You know, when he came out, he still had to live with everything that he had done. But let's assume that when he was in prison, he repented. Assume that he actually got to a point where he then said, right, I'm actually... And as I said, by the way, I don't know that he's ever done this. So this is, this is a totally hypothetical. Okay, so, but let's assume he repented when he came out. And uh, he then had to then, for the rest of his life, he then had to live, knowing now that he's got a relationship with God, saying, knowing that he's going forward. How many of us would have then still had a relationship with him? And I'm prepared to bet that very few of us. Because of what he had done in the past, because of what we, we assumed he had done, we would actually have said, no, we, we still can't trust him, you know. And uh, he would have been on his own. But you know something? That if he had done that, then God would have been with him even then. But you know that your friends might not last. You know, you could end up doing something like Rolf Harris, where, where suddenly you find yourself very alone. And we live in a society right now which has gone very horrible, I think. And they've got this thing called the cancel culture. 
And uh, if you happen to say the wrong thing at the wrong time, or if they discover that you actually said the wrong thing 20 years ago and it's still got a record somewhere, you can actually find yourself ostracized by the whole of society. And you can find everyone turning their back on you and, uh, and that sort of thing. But you want to know something, that in all those circumstances, there's one person will still stand by you. And that is God. And that is Jesus. He has promised never to leave us. And as a matter of fact, you know, you, they say, what is the best descriptions of faith you have in the Bible? You've got all the words of that. I, I love that, the, the phrase there, that I believe that nothing can separate me from the love of God revealed in Christ Jesus Christ, my Lord. That to me is a best example of faith. If you believe that Christ is with you no matter what, then you can face whatever God is actually, whatever the world, sorry, God will be with you in it. The world will throw at you. Satan will throw at you. People will throw at you. And even yourself can throw at you because sometimes it's your own sinful things that can do. But whatever happens, God will stand by you because you now have no condemnation. Now you are the children of God and now you are more than a conqueror. So as we end this chapter, what a beautiful way to end the chapter, eh? And, uh, we can see that, that we, can, we can live this life as a conqueror. And we have this view on the top of the mountain. And at the top of this mountain, you have a view where you can actually get a view of where you fit in eternity. Because that's what it, what it really counts to in the end, is that you need to see where you fit in eternity. And part of it is to see how small you are with the vastness of eternity. But the other part is to realize how important you are to God, that you, God thought enough of you where you are to come and die for you. And, uh, and that if you were the only person that needed to be saved, Christ would still have done it. And that he has a plan for us. So when we're on the, that mountain, we can see creation all the way to the time when Christ came and lived and died and rose again, all the way to where we are now as we've accepted Christ. And we look forward to the time when we will actually be with Christ in eternity. And we know that Christ says, not only will he be with you to the end, it's nice to say someone will be with you to the end, he'll be with us past the end. He's going to be with us even as we go past that. So something to hold on to. So a lot of the time when we do a preach, we like to leave people with a, something that they can, you know, go away from here and do this this week or something. I've got nothing for you to do that this week. I actually want us to just take a moment to just thank God for what he has actually done. The, the fact that he is with us. And, to, and, if, and if you can spend some time alone with him, just to, to enjoy his presence, that would be a fantastic thing. But just to actually, this, this time, to encourage you to know God is with you. And that, that uh, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has said he will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. No matter what circumstances you fall into. So let me just close with a word of prayer. And then we're going to, to um, have a song, the... Blessing. I was going to say the benediction, but it's not. It's the blessing. Okay, so, so let, let me just close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you that you are. Oh, that you, you are there, Lord. That you are the one that is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you that you are the one that actually has uh, freed me from my sin. You've paid the penalty for my sin. You've broken the power of sin. And we pray for the day when we will be free of sin, the presence of sin as well. And we just put this all into your hands and just pray that you can actually guide and direct us in all that we do, Lord, that we can live our lives as praise to you, live our lives as blessing to you. And thank you that we know that you actually know the future, Lord, and that you have promised to go into the future with us, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And we just give you the praise and the glory now in Jesus' name.